There is a lot here. And the challenge of preaching is how do you take something that is so theologically dense and not miss the forest for the trees, and yet not taking any of the guts or the important part or the depth out of such a rich passage. It's a challenge. It's something that we as preachers continually fail on, but we strive to make sure that we get it, as we often say here, from the kitchen to the table without spilling it. So let me start with an illustration. Towards the end of World War II, Poland fell under control of the Soviet Union. Having been rescued from Hitler in the Third Reich, they now found themselves, unfortunately, bound by communism in political and geographic slavery. Fear of death was real under the heel of Moscow. Towards the end of the war and right after, up to six million Poles were relocated to labor camps. Six million. Between these camps and subsequent repression and control, it is estimated that one million Poles have perished at the hands of communist Russia. But on August 14, 1980, something changed. There was something in the wind. Lech Luenza, an electrician at the Lenin shipyards, organized for the first time in a Soviet bloc nation an independent labor union. And he stood up to the communist regime. This act of defiance was unheard of. The movement... Solidarnosc, or solidarity. It took root. They gave in to their demands, briefly. But it was not without a fight, for quickly, quickly thereafter, the Polish government, fearful that the Russians would come in with their army, immediately locked down the country for two years with martial law. And yet this movement cried out to the world, Solidarity! Stand with us! You see, they had looked to the West and they had seen life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and they wanted that. And so they cried out, Please, stand with us. And many people did. Many organizations did. Pope John Paul II was said to have helped initiate it during his visit in 1978, but, but other than public support... There wasn't much else, except for an old president named Ronald Reagan, who in the middle of a Cold War said, I will stand with you. And on February 19th, 1987, well before the Iron Curtain fell, he opened up trade and he removed the sanctions against Poland. And if that were not enough, and unbeknownst to the rest of the world and even the United States, he funded the movement to the tune of $10 million through the back channels of the CIA. He stood in solidarity, not just in lip service, but he identified himself with the people and actually gave them aid. 
And just two years later, in 1989, Lech Walesa was elected the first non-communist prime minister. And the curtain started to fall. Solidarity. Solidarnosk. Solidarity. Oxford describes it as a unity or agreement of feeling or action, especially among individuals with a common interest. To stand in solidarity with someone. What does that mean? Well, our text today answers that question. We have Jewish believers that are, that are fearful, legitimately scared. Suffering has started. We know from chapter 12, verse 4, that they have not suffered to the point of death, but times are tough and the volume is increasing. Fear is real. And the author today, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to comfort them in two ways, with two descriptions regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And watch this, how Jesus stands in solidarity with believers. Jesus stands in solidarity with the sons of Adam who've embraced Jesus Christ. Pray with me, and we'll look at the text together. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time we can spend together as a family, as a body of believers. Thank you, Lord, that I have the privilege to give this encouraging message about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One who not only stands with us verbally, but identifies himself with us as being incarnated into human flesh without giving up any of his divinity. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who drew near and who didn't just give us assistance, but who fought our battle for us. A battle that we could not win. One who conquered death and freed us from slavery. There is no better definition of solidarity. And so we are excited to learn about it. Excited to deepen our understanding of who Jesus is and what He did. And Father, I pray that our fear, be it minuscule as compared to these first century believers, would dissipate. That our trust in our Lord Jesus Christ would grow. That our boldness would increase. And that You would make us truly effective tools in the Redeemer's hands. Father, change us. Change our perception. Change our thinking. And use us with this new found understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, look back, if you will, at verse 9. This is where we ended last week. It's a section on angels. He's been talking about the superiority of Jesus Christ, the Creator, the Redeemer who spoke the worlds into existence as compared to angels, the creation. It's worth reminding that these Jewish believers were tempted to either lower the Creator 
lower Lord Jesus Christ to a position of some sort of super angel or revere and worship the creation, angels. Most likely, this peer pressure is coming from Judaism, from family, from friends who have not converted, who do not follow Jesus Christ, and say, hey, buddy, we want to continue to have a relationship with you. We want to be able to do life together, but you cannot claim that Jesus is God. So there's pressure. And so the author is extolling the name and the nature of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 9 is picking up on Psalm 8, which is talking about that man was created to rule, man was created to govern, but man lost that ability certainly to do it well in the fall. But Jesus Christ, as the perfect man who died the substitutionary death in our place, is now seated at the right hand of God. So he's going to draw upon that Psalm 8 several times. Now, look at our text today. There is a lot here, and so what I'd like to do is give us an overview. If I can give us a working knowledge and an understanding of this, then my job gets that much easier. So let's just make some observations here. Think about Christ's incarnation. Stepping down from his throne, throwing off his royal robes, sinking himself into human flesh so that he might die in our place. This text covers a lot of that. And it talks about Christ's humanity. There's a lot of theology there. I've watched a lot of commentators go over here and start talking a lot about Christ's incarnation. And it's very important stuff. But we cannot lose the forest for the trees. Why is the author talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Well, think about it. Why are these Jewish believers fearful? Go back a week. Times are tough. Things are not looking good. Suffering is real. Death may be on the horizon. I thought Jesus was ruling, but I can't see him. And the author says, yes, but what you cannot see him physically ruling, you can see Jesus in Scripture. Therefore, trust what you can see. And so that in the areas you cannot see, you can trust as well. But here he gets very personal. They're suffering, and they feel, watch this, alone. What do you feel like when you are suffering, especially for the name of Christ? What do you feel like when you've been rejected, perhaps from a good friend or a family member, when you've been mocked, when you've been kicked to the curb, when someone has ghosted you and they no longer return calls? What do you feel like? I'll tell you what I feel like. Man, I'm going crazy. And I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to feel that way, right? I just let the cat out of the bag. Am I going crazy? Shouldn't, shouldn't it be working better? I've done the formula. I was a friend with them. I gave them the word of God. 
I cared for them. Why do they hate me now? So you feel like you're going crazy. And then you feel alone. And then you feel like, I I can't control my circumstances. What's going to happen to me next? What if this person leaves me or that person leaves me? What if I lose my job? That's the way these people are feeling. Except for them, it's even more real. They're most likely under Nero's persecution. And so what is better for someone to encourage you, for someone to stand with you, than for them to be able to identify with you, right? If someone can identify with me, if someone can say, hey, Rod, I not only empathize or sympathize with you, no, 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 I understand I've been there. Doesn't that change everything? I've felt that way. I've been in your shoes. Can I encourage you with the way to respond? Man, I'm, I'm listening, right? Well, think about it. They've lost their understanding or they've never understood Christ's humanity. That if they're suffering, who else suffered? Jesus Christ. And he didn't suffer as, as someone who was disconnected or in a different way. He suffered as a human. Look at verse 11. He makes this connection with them. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are, watch this, are all from one Father. And he's not ashamed to call them brothers, brethren. Verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. Verse 14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. And I wrote in my notes here with just a big exclamation point, solidarity, solidarity, right off the bat. If these are suffering believers and that suffering is real and that fear is real, they're not going crazy. They're not alone. Jesus became man. He understands That's the kind of support I want. That all of a sudden makes things different in my mind. When my Lord understands the pain that I'm going through, when He understands the threat that I'm facing, when I find out that the God of the universe understands human pain, Well, now I'm all ears. That's solidarity. But it it gets better. It gets better. It's one thing to to identify with someone in likeness, in identity, in a personhood. But then it's quite another step to identify with someone in their work. 
I want you to notice the focus on compassion in these next verses. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all, are all, all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the, underline this, author of their salvation through sufferings. The author of their salvation through sufferings. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in all that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So not only did the second person of the Trinity become fully human and experience and feel all that we felt, here we find out that he also suffered. That suffering was part of God's plan. That suffering was part of God's plan to bring many sons, us, to glory. And that in that suffering, He is merciful. He feels for us. He understands us. And He is able to come to our aid. Can you just feel the progression? Person, identity, that's amazing. Work, compassion, He actually suffered. We could stop there and that would just be off the charts amazing. There is no other world religion where God is both transcendent, above all, all-powerful, and eminent, nearby, understands us, has a relationship with us, became like us. But it even goes further. It sounds like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. Okay? One thing to identify, but to actually enter into their world, now watch this, actually change their situation... Okay, now, now we're talking about something different. Now, this is not just solidarity standing with someone. This is now standing in front of someone and taking the blows and taking the hits. Now, look at this. Verse 14 again. Through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those through fear of death were subject to slavery. Verse 16, he didn't give this help to angels. Verse 17, second part, to make propitiation. It's a big theological word that means to satisfy the just wrath of God that was due for us. He took the hit. Verse 18, and he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Solidarity. Solidarity. If I'm alone and I'm afraid and I think I'm going crazy and no one understands and the world is closing in on me and my best friends have betrayed me, because of Christianity, that encourages me. 
Because my God understands me. Because my God became like me. My God has compassion on me. And even more than that, my God took the hits for me. This is not be warm, be filled. I'm sorry you feel that way. Take a nap. Maybe you're just stressed. Maybe you're having anxiety or a panic attack. Baloney. This author comforts these people with God himself. And this is amazing because I don't know what you're like, but I have a tendency to just relegate Jesus as just God. That sounds kind of crazy. I don't mean to, to sound disrespectful at all, but, but he is God. He is far away. He is all-powerful. But I forget that he is human. Now, this pericope here, I haven't even gotten to the main part here. It, this is too much to swallow in one sitting. It's just, it's, just, it's just too rich, too deep. So we're going to split it up into two. There are two different descriptions of Christ here that he's going to use to encourage these hurting believers. Uh, one is the picture of a champion, a pioneer, a leader. And the other one is of a high priest. And in each section, we're going to talk about his incarnation who he became, who he is, and then his work, what he did. So we're going to cover verses 10 through 16 today. We'll save 17 and 18 through next week. If you're looking for a theme, the eternal Son became like us, suffered to save us, and identifies with us. Two points, incarnation. We're going to delve a little deeper into that. And then Two, write down the word champion, and I'll explain why in a bit. I want us to imagine what times are like for this little church. I want us to realize that this, in fact, is far more the norm throughout history than what we experience today. Did you hear about did you hear about Sully from the East Side Church last week? He was, he was flogged for a crime he didn't commit. I know. I know. And, and, and when I was coming out of service last week, I saw Rabbi Benjamin. You know he's got contacts with Roman officials. He gave me a look. It made my blood run cold. I don't know, man. I... I believe all this stuff, but, but it just doesn't seem to be progressing. I'm, I'm questioning things. I've got kids to think about. I've got a wife. I've got a business. I've lost so many customers over the last year. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And my kids are suffering. They don't even get invited over to their friends' houses anymore. We're considered the freaks on the street. Am I going crazy? It's not like things are any better at church. I mean, I like this pastor. He's a nice enough guy, but, but there aren't visitors that come anymore. I haven't seen a visitor in seven, eight months. And it seems like our membership, our fellowship is like a leaky bucket. People keep leaving and defecting. 
And they're angry when they go. I feel like I'm constantly being watched. I'm lonely. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe we are a cult. Maybe I'm seeing things in the Old Testament about the Messiah that aren't really there. Maybe I'm the one who's duped. I don't think that conversation is too far off from what was going on. Think about the things that he talked about. Seeing people who might betray him. Losing confidence in the group you identify with. Hearing about people being punished who, in fact, were innocent. Having trouble making ends meet because you were personally being rejected. Having doubts because something must be wrong or not growing. All of a sudden, when you do that and you bring that concept, that conversation into the modern day, you can feel the fear. It's palatable. Oh, we may not run the risk of being flogged. But you can feel the fear, the doubt, the questioning. 2,000 years and a bit of physical persecution seem to be the only two things that separate us, and the latter may not be too far in the future. When you feel alone, you just want someone who understands. You want someone who can identify. You want someone who's been there, right? Don't tell me you'll be praying for me while you're, you're sitting way up in the box seats. I want someone who's down on the field with me. I want someone who's got scars. I want someone who will enter into my world and stand with me, perhaps even take the hits for me. And the author says, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Watch what he does in verses 11 through 13. We're going to come back to 10 in a moment. Look at verse 11. It says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So he starts off right off the bat by saying, look, Jesus and mankind are all from the Father, meaning that, that Jesus is fully human. Now, I could spend an entire semester, in fact, there are classes in seminary that spend an entire semester on the Incarnation. But just think about it. When we make the statement, Jesus became a man, think about how pregnant that, that concept is. Think about it just from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Jesus, God of very God, radiance from the Father, the exact representation, 
the one who spoke the worlds into existence, he became a man so that he might save us. That's not just knowing someone famous, is it? <laughs> Talk about name dropping. That's being related. Oh, Jesus, he's my, he's my brother. He's my brother. All of a sudden, my, my fears, my sufferings seem to just fade into the background. And then he gives three quotations here. And if you're like me, you're looking at them and you're saying, well, I recognize it's block lettering, so it's Old Testament, but that's about all I know. But if you're a first century Jew, you've got to realize this warms your formerly kosher heart, okay? You're excited about this. You recognize this. This is like someone quoting a line from your favorite song or from your favorite movie. You get it. And these quotations are meant to assure you that you're not going crazy. That Jesus is not only on his throne, but he knows what you're going through. Because he's been through it. I'll leave it for further study, but let's just, let's just do a, a 30,000 foot view of them. The first one is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 22. You don't need to turn there. But if you're a Jew, you recognize that immediately. If you're a first century Christian, you recognize it even more. Psalm 22. I'm going to read you a few verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Verse 7, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of the earth. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this verse he quotes here is just a few verses later, after the crucifixion, after the exaltation. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Translation. The author is drawing upon what they knew in Judaism that was a messianic passage and what all first century Christians knew to be talking about Jesus and said, you're not going crazy. Of course David was talking about Jesus and the ultimate fulfillment. What you didn't realize is this other little bit here in verse 22 where after all of that talk about the crucifixion, Jesus says... Yeah, and the church, the believers, they're my brothers. We're kin. We're family. Do you feel your heart being strangely warmed? One, you're not going crazy. Two, you're not lonely. Think about those questions that you, you ask yourself when you're suffering. Three, he is now reigning. 
He stands in solidarity because he is like us. He calls us brothers. And he's even among us, leading us in song, praising God. How could Jesus praise God after suffering like this? Ah, because suffering is not something that got by the throne of God. Suffering is part of his plan to bring many sons to glory. And Jesus has been through it, and Jesus will carry us through it. He's our brother. The next two quotations are from Isaiah chapter 8, and they have the same effect. You think, well, I don't know Isaiah chapter 8. Yeah, but you know the chapter before it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And you know chapter 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And sandwiched between those two well-known messianic passages, which Christ himself fulfilled in the incarnation, you see this phrase that Isaiah says, I will put my trust in him. You're not going crazy. You're not alone. Jesus understands because he is human. And even he, watch this, was in desperate dependence upon the Father. Even he, especially when he suffered, put his trust in God. Side note here, this is not in my notes, so we may throw it out. But do you realize then the way we comfort other believers is not by telling them that their circumstances are going to change? Or or telling them that, hey, just around the corner, it's going to be easier or better. We comfort them with a good and sovereign God. And we comfort them with a Savior that understands our position. Both are comforting outside of our circumstances with the God who is above our circumstances. Amen? Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Let's remember also these Jewish believers knew Isaiah the prophet well. They knew his story. They knew well that that there were threats from invaders around him from the northern kingdom Syria and from, uh, from northern kingdom and from Syria. And they knew that Isaiah and his children, his family, were were a remnant, a faithful remnant that was trusting in God. What is this first century church like? They're a faithful remnant that is trusting in God. We're meant to feel the identification and compassion here from our Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. If I could sum it all up, the author is saying, Hey, believers, 
You're not going crazy. I know you feel lonely. I know this suffering is difficult. But your Savior, your Savior that was talked about in the Old Testament Scriptures, your Savior became man, understands, suffered, and we're going to find out in a minute, secured salvation. Your Savior is human. He felt really lonely. I want you to think about your pain, your suffering right now, your loneliness, your doubts in a sovereign God. Jesus understands how you feel. He felt lonely. He really did get tired. He really did have aches and pains in his bodies. He probably had allergies. People really did disappoint him. He really did cry. I'm sure he missed home. Who would want to be here when you had heaven? He felt the hate. He got tired of being used. The betrayals were real. Rejection seemed never-ending. The words stung like knives. His name was maligned. He was mocked. The blows were real on a human body that bruised, cut, and he bled worse than any of us ever will. He understands far more than we realize And the compassion He extends us is not from the cheap seats. He's on the field with us and has given us the Holy Spirit to walk with us through all these things. And we could stop there, but watch what happens in the second point. Write down the word champion. Go back to verse 10. It's the summary for the entire text. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. You see that word author, author of their salvation? That translation is fine, it's good, but I think there's one that's a little bit better. Archegos, archegos is the word in Greek. It's probably better rendered leader or champion. Now remember, these are Hellenistic Jews. They grew up outside of Palestine. So they're Jewish, but they're thoroughly Greek in their understanding, thoroughly Greek in their language, thoroughly Greek even in a lot of culture. Do you know who was called Archegos? Hercules. Hercules. So when this author writes that Jesus Christ was the champion of our salvation, what's in their minds? A super powerful, victorious Savior. One who defeats what? Verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, so that through death, here's the key, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those 
who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus, the champion, how did he liberate us from the death and the slavery that was binding us? Well, John Owen says it best in his book, the death of death in the death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. That Jesus Christ, who was made human, was appointed by God to be our champion. But that victory did not come through the way we normally think of victory. But that victory came through suffering unto death, where Jesus killed death and defeated Satan. That's Genesis 3.15. That's the first prophecy. The seed of the woman crushed the serpent's head. Now you think about it. These guys, these Jewish believers, they're suffering. They don't understand why no one understands. I thought Jesus was in control. And the author says, Jesus does understand. He suffered too. It was part of the plan to save you. To kill death. What are you afraid of? You're afraid of death? No, 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 death is dead. You're you're afraid of, of, of the devil? No, 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 no. He's limping around. He's defeated. You get it? Suffering is not something that is catching them off guard, though they think that. Suffering is something that their Savior went through as part of the plan to end solidarity fight for them, and conquer death. Why are they scared? To live is Christ, to die is gain. And this resonates with these Jews. They understand this. They understand that God is their Redeemer. God is their champion. Isaiah 49, Can the prey be taken from the champion, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty men will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons. They got it that God was to be their champion. What they didn't get is that champion, that victory, was going to come through the cross. It was going to come through suffering. And if our Savior has suffered, our champion has suffered and been victorious, well then guess what? Our battle is already won. And our suffering is how He is sanctifying us. Jesus not only understands, but this is part of God's sovereign plan. You're not going crazy. You're not in this alone. You get it? So here's my question for us. Are you suffering? Are you afraid? O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Does it comfort you to know that Jesus has already won the battle. That your loneliness is perceived. 
Your consequences are not unknown. They're orchestrated by the Father. Jesus entered into our world, became like us, identified with us, got down on the field and not only stood with us, but stood in front of us and took the hits, won the battle. If all that's true, and it is, is there any reason, any reason for us to worry? Is there any reason for us to be fearful? I can't say it any better than the Apostle Paul. Let me just leave us with this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? You know it, don't you? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, say with me, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Look, we need this message, Metro Bible. We need this message now when we're not dealing with what they dealt with then. But I also know that everyone's cave is just as dark. And I know that you have fears I know, that you, I know that you have sufferings. And I know that when you stand for Christ, you will take a hit. You're not going crazy. You are not alone. Jesus not only understands because he became a man, he's our champion and he was victorious. And the very thing that makes us fearful is the very thing he has already killed. Amen.